Hi friends, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Today we're talking passion and purpose. My guest is the amazing Dr. Praise Matamave. Praise is the first Zimbabwean abdominal transplant surgeon. Passion and Purpose is also the name of her terrific book, which is actually a collection of stories and interviews with black women surgeons from 27 countries. These women have broken barriers to follow and achieve their dreams, and many of them have accomplished firsts in their respective fields of surgery. These stories that Dr. Matamave has combined in this book, along with her own, are just amazing examples of grit, determination, and resilience, often in the face of odds that will seem insurmountable. Dr. Matamave dreamed of becoming a doctor from a very early age, but she had trouble finding role models that actually looked like her and could help guide her journey. So she's written the book that she needed then but couldn't find in order to help other young girls and women to see these role models who look like them. It's an amazing story. Today, Dr. Matamave is the Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. There she is also a practicing transplant surgeon, and she's recently launched a podcast which is also called Passion and Purpose. Dr. Matamave, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is such an honor to be on your podcast. Well, I am honored to have you. I was so moved by your incredible story. As I mentioned to you before we started, a good friend of mine who attended the University of Mississippi had read about you and said, Dr. Matamave would be amazing on She Said, She Said. So here we are, and I'm really, really happy to have you this morning. Thank you. I really love what your platform does to empower girls and women. Thank you. And I was binging on your episodes after you contacted me. <laughs> <laughs> thank so I you. I have really enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So let's jump into your story. You ha have had an amazing journey, but becoming a transplant surgeon was hardly linear. <laughs> Talk to me <laughs> about, about how, give me a little sense of your story and how you got here. First of all, growing up, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a transplant surgeon. Because you grew I, up in Zimbabwe, right? Yes, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe up until I was about 14 and a half. And then I moved to the United States, to Michigan in the winter. Wow. All places. <laughs> So it was a rude awakening arriving in Chicago in December when there was so much snow on the ground. I had never seen snow in my life. And so um, growing up in Zimbabwe, I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old. My parents tell me that's all I ever talked about. That's all I've, I ever wanted to do. And there was a group from Loma Linda that came to my country when I was about eight years old. And they were... Um, doing congenital heart surgery hmm. at our biggest hospital in, in Zimbabwe, in Harare. And so my dad told me about it, I think more in passing, like, oh, you know, there's a group that's doing heart surgery. And at that time I was like, well, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be a heart surgeon. <laughs> and when I was in the fifth grade, he got me the book Gifted Hands by Ben Carson. Uh -huh. And so I read that book in one night, in one sitting. 
and even though I didn't think I wanted to be a neurosurgeon like he was, I just saw a person who looked like me, who was doing something similar to what I wanted to do. And that just empowered me. So from then on, I just knew I wanted to be a doctor. So now fast forward a few years, I'm a teenager, I become pregnant, I become a mom. And, you know, the biggest worry my parents had was that I would never be able to pursue my dream of becoming a doctor because for anybody that knew me, that's all I lived with becoming a doctor. And so, you know, the challenges that came with that were enormous, but, you know, when you have trust in God and you have a family that cares about you and is willing to support you through all the difficulties, I think anything is possible. And I'm a testament to that. So that's kind of my story. Yeah. You had the baby mm -hmm. and then you pursued a degree in nursing, right? I did. I had a baby who is now 20 years old and is in nursing school herself. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So because at the time I was pre-med, but also I was not a U.S. resident, permanent resident or citizen. And so I didn't have access to, to financial aid. So I needed to be able to do a degree that one would be able to pay the bills since now I had to be responsible for someone else. And number two, something that was a little quicker to do than my medical path. So my mom actually was very influential in helping me decide to go to nursing school. And so I went to Lake Michigan College where I did an associate degree in nursing. You never lost sight of your ultimate goal though. And, and so many people, I would think, once you had taken the path to pursue nursing, you could mm -hmm. easily just sort of get wrapped up in that. That's a great field to pursue. But how did you stay focused on your even bigger goal that you ultimately ended up achieving? So it's, nursing is absolutely a fantastic field. And I have to say that for a lot of people that I have talked to, once they do nursing and become nurses and they start making good money, then it's like, well, really I'm comfortable. So what is the point? Mm -hmm. But for me, I was never truly satisfied because I knew that was not my purpose. And even though I loved nursing and I loved you know, taking care of patients, I just knew ultimately that was not my ultimate goal. Yeah. And even if it meant that I had to downsize my way of living so I could achieve the ultimate goal for quite a few years, <laughs> then <laughs> that's what I needed to do. I always tell young girls that you have to have a vision and you have to have a goal. And you have to know exactly what it is that you want. It's okay to change your mind about things as you, know, as you mature and grow. Like I started off wanting to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, but I'm a transplant surgeon. So you know, it's okay to change as you grow, but you have to have a goal that you can always keep your eyes set on, no matter what's happening in your life, you know that this is what I need to do and this is what I need to do to get there. How do you know, right, the, the going, got tough mm -hmm. and tougher before it got easier. Yep. How did you know that this was the right thing for you to continue to pursue this against what were really very significant odds, which we haven't really touched on as of yet? You got married, you dealt with a very um, serious uh, 
domestic abuse situation um, that you can talk about if you'd like to. Uh, but there were a number of obstacles in addition to being a mom. Um, talk about how you knew <laughs> that this was what you had to do. This was hard, right? Yes. And I think I'm one of the lucky few that just know. <laughs> yeah. And because I just knew from a very young age that this was my purpose. This is what I needed to do. And I always say for people who it doesn't come easy to, to just know what your purpose is, then you have to find out what your purpose is because then your life, your whole life is wrapped around what your purpose is because each day you're supposed to be working and pursuing your purpose. And for me, because of my faith in God, I drew a lot of strength from, from that. And whenever the going got tough or whenever I started to doubt, I would just look to God and get my direction from him. So for me, that's, that's what worked for me. You're also the daughter, your father was a pastor growing up. And I'm sure that must have played a big role in your life in yes. terms of helping to really tap into your faith? Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because I, I was telling my daughter and her friend the other day that for me, growing up as a pastor's daughter and growing up in the church, it's like, you know, it's just what you're used to. It's just normal life. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until after I was in my early 20s when I went through my most difficult time that I really got to know God for myself. So I feel like as uh, for Christians who are listening, for Christian girls, it's so easy to be wrapped up in your, in your parents' um, religion, so to say, in your parents' God. But it's not until you discover God for yourself that it becomes very meaningful. Because, you know, I was baptized when I was 14 years old. I went to mostly Adventist schools. So I pretty much was really raised in the church. I say sometimes that I was actually pretty sheltered because I was very much raised in the church. But then it wasn't until that very difficult time in my life where I felt so alone because you know domestic violence is something that a lot of women suffer in silence and they suffer alone. And it was during that time that I truly discovered who God was. Yeah. Mate, can you, do you mind talking a bit about that experience and how you made it out of that experience? Sometimes I know with many women, the challenge can be blaming themselves mm -hmm. or, you know, there's a situation that occurs and they say, oh, it's just a one-time thing and it becomes a pattern, but it becomes very, very hard for them to, yes. to break that pattern. And, it, you know, self-doubt comes into play mm -hmm. here. Talk a bit about how how you got out of the situation how did you how did you do that it was very difficult um because the like you say a lot of times women blame themselves for me i had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and i had gotten married and this was my way of fixing the problem that was there the the embarrassment that i had caused my parents in the community they didn't come out and say that to me but to me i felt like i had to fix that because, you know, they were prominent members of the church right. and that had done this horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And so to me, getting married sort of kind of fixed it. But then um, when you realize that you don't even know who you are, how do you expect to get into a marriage with somebody else? Right. And at that point, I realized that I had, well, after years after, you know, after healing emotionally, I realized that 
The problem was that I had very low self-esteem and I didn't value myself. And so it made it very easy for me to allow somebody else to treat me any way that they wanted to treat me. And for a lot of women, especially women with children, it becomes very difficult to live because you may be depending on somebody else for financial, um, for financial help in raising your kids. Mm-hmm. And so they look at the situation leaving and them having to be independent, taking care of the kids alone, because a lot of times the other partner may say that if you leave, I'm not going to help you take care of the kids. They may look around and see that they don't have the resources to be able to, to handle all that on their own, even if they have a job outside the home. And so I always tell people that I, that I mentor who are going through or who have been through domestic violence and domestic abuse, that it can be very dangerous for a woman when they leave because there's a lot of um, control that goes on with the, with the perpetrator. And you leaving shows that they are now losing control. Right. And people sometimes can go to lengths to, they can do very horrible things, whether it's to you, your kids. And so it's very important to have a supportive group, uh, people you trust, who can support you and who can help you through the transition because I just don't see how anybody can do it alone. It's one of those things where you, it truly takes a village. You need a group of people that you trust that are willing to help you and support you, especially in the first few months, sometimes even that first year. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a strategy in, in exiting that relationship because you cannot just up and leave. There are a lot of women who have lost their lives in the in the process. Yeah. You know. So and, and also the shame involved in admitting that yes. you're in this situation and allowing that community, however, whoever that, that is around you, whoever your tribe is, if you will, to really support you when, you know, inevitably a lot of women feel very ashamed when they find themselves in this situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your family was a big part of that support network, right? And you managed to get out of this situation. How did, how did this not sideline your ultimate goal? How did you, how did you get out of this situation and continue to plow forward? What happened next? I think for me that actually fueled me because, you know, I looked at my two kids and I wanted better for them. And I wanted them to grow up knowing that they could have dreams and their dreams were valid and they could achieve those dreams. I think that was one of my biggest push and my biggest motivator. Because, you know, looking at them, I didn't want them to, to feel like they were restricted in any way, you know? That whatever you go through, and I guess also part because it's part of my plan of my faith that I understand that whatever happens to you happens to you for a reason, even though I may not know what the reason is Mm -hmm. here on earth, but I truly believe that it's all part of the plan. Sometimes there are things that we do that we have, we have to deal with the consequences of, but I still truly believe that at the end of the day, God will make it all good for you in the end. So even if it's something that you may have made a mistake, done something wrong, that he always works things out for your good. So I think that alone 
helped fuel me to just keep carrying on because I knew that regardless, he would still open doors for me as long as I kept, kept my vision and I kept you know, my eye on the prize that he would make it happen for me. I just had that faith. Sometimes I wonder what happened to that girl. <laughs> That's amazing. I had so much faith. <laughs> well, you talk about in the book, as you're telling your own story about how grateful you are for these experiences and these significant setbacks that you had uh-huh. in your life, yes. um, which is really what you're talking about. To yeah. have that level of gratitude when things don't unfold exactly as you might have imagined. And Absolutely. Think, right? Thinking about the value that comes from that. Yes. It's so interesting. Yeah, because you know, a lot of times when you are in the thick of it, you don't see any other way out and you don't see how you're ever going to be happy or you don't see how you're ever going to achieve that dream. But then once you're on the other side and you realize that perseverance is key. You just have to be consistent. You just have to persevere. You just have to keep going. Then you realize that a lot of people end up not accomplishing their dreams because they're actually giving up when it's almost time for them to accomplish it, you know? But also without those experiences, I wouldn't be who I am today. So yes, I'm very grateful. Yeah. So you pursued ultimately becoming a doctor, but what was it about transplant surgeon that really just lit you up inside? So initially, actually, it was a cardiothoracic surgeon who saw me reading a book called Walk on Water. It's Uh about a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. And since at that time, I was thinking I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. You know, I used to read all the books I could find on, on CT surgery. And he said to me that, you know, one of the other fields that I think is very interesting is pediatric liver transplant. Mm. And I knew nothing about that. And he told me about um, a man that he had, that he knew, I don't know if they trained together or he knew this, um, this man from Michigan, from Botts, who had done his general surgery training at Botsford and now was the chief of transplant at University of Nebraska Medical Center. So when I got home, I researched everything that I could find on this guy that he had told me about. And I remember it was sometime in 2008 because I was a second year medical student. And I remember saying, this is where I'm going to go for my fellowship training in transplant surgery because this seems so awesome. I'm going to be a transplant surgeon. Mind you, I had never seen what transplant surgery was. I knew (laughs) nothing about it, but... I just thought, wow, this is so incredible that you can take a diseased organ out and put in a new organ and someone can have a completely normal life. And from then on, never changed my mind. That's really amazing. You have written a terrific book called Passion and Purpose. Yes. It's terrific. This was the book that you wished you had had with amazing role models, women who look like you, many of them who had similar backgrounds, but Mm -hmm. this book didn't exist. Talk about why you felt so strongly about writing this book. So I think, you know, once I had become an attending, I felt like this, this is something that I should do. I wish I had had a book where I could just open the book, 
look at whatever specialty in surgery and say, okay, I see there's a woman here who looks like me who did it. I can do it too. I think it would have just been very encouraging and just inspiring and motivating, especially those long days because the training can be very grueling. And so there are times when you want to quit. So just having a visual representation of what's possible, I think is very powerful. So I figured since I didn't have it, I would make sure it was available to somebody else for a, for a young me somewhere out there in the world. How did the book come about? These are, these are interviews, individual mm -hmm. interviews and conversations with each of these women. There are how many profiled in the book? 74, right? 74 different so, women plus me. So 75 total 75. story. Um, one woman is de deceased. She died in 2017 in a domestic violence situation. Oh. And yes, and she was, she was incredible. So when I, when I thought about writing the book, I thought about her because oftentimes I'll meet people. I never met her personally, but I'll meet people in the, in the transplant community because she was a black female transplant surgeon as well. And they would say, oh, you remind me of Sherilyn. And I never met her. So I actually contacted her mom and her dad and I asked them if they would be willing to do an interview with me so I could get a sense of who she was and what kind of person she was. And they graciously granted me the interview. I drove over to Arkansas where they live and I was able to talk to them and, and just get a sense of who Sherilyn is. So she's the first woman in the book. Yeah. And then all the other women, it was very, I wanted to be global to be able to, to get as many women from different countries as possible. And because initially I was planning to only do 54 women because 54, I was like, okay, there's 54 African nations. So 54 is a good number. But then the response was so overwhelming that I then decided to do 75, 75 total. Uh -huh. But it was, it was quite, it was a challenge, but very inspiring and just very interesting to get in touch with all these women from around the world with all our different time zones and all our crazy schedules right. and have, and most of them were actually via zoom. So it was, it, it was quite an experience. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and really an opportunity to create this community, which already existed, yes. right. But that you didn't know each other necessarily. Exactly. Exactly. It's been great. And to just keep in touch with these women, it's just been amazing. Yeah. Do you see other opportunities where the 70, 74 of you will potentially work together on other projects? Yes, absolutely. I'm hoping that we can have our stories be made into a documentary. Wow. So because, you know, I think it, it will be just so powerful just to even see the differences in healthcare between all the different countries, whether it's in the UK, the US, Brazil, Kenya, Zimbabwe, you know, so I think it would just be a very powerful representation of, yeah. of our stories. All of these stories, I think it's fair to say, have an element of grit, uh, determination, perseverance. Was yes. there anything that surprised you, any additional thread through these stories that when you look back, you say, wow, I didn't expect that? Yes, actually, I think the concept of imposter syndrome, ah. that showed up quite a lot in our we conversation. talk about that a lot on and, this podcast. <laughs> and, and how each woman was, has been able to 
to rise above it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I thought that was something that only I suffered from because, <laughs> you know, yes. and it's one of those things where I didn't even know it had a name until, you know, a few years ago. But it's just so interesting to see these very highly qualified women who are amazing actually talk about having imposter syndrome. And I thought that was very important for especially young girls picking up these books to know that those feelings will come, but they are not real. Right. And you will experience it a lot of times because you are the only that looks like you in your field or in your work of employment. And that's okay, but it doesn't mean that you're less than. Right. So I found that to be very interesting. Did you, did you learn from any of these women any interesting techniques or tips that they used for kind of recognizing imposter syndrome when it's happening, putting it aside and plowing forward? Was there anything that anyone did that was perhaps particularly unique? I think just mostly positive self-talk self and not being too hard on yourself, especially when complications happen complications will happen as a surgeon. Mm. And a lot of times women uh, are affected in a very, they are very much affected more than men and take it very personally. And I think it's just the, the concept of not, not taking everything so personally as if it's, it's your failure, even because a lot of times it's something that's beyond your control. And so just the positive self-talk and I think um, probably, I don't have my book in front of me, but Dr. Patricia Turner, I think I asked her specifically how she dealt with it. And she has a good section where she talks about it. And I think she's probably, it's probably like chapter two or something. Which yeah. is, but she's, she's one incredible woman. What about the additional challenge or, or is there an additional challenge of being not only female, but also a woman of color? in an environment that is male dominated and I would imagine largely white. Is there an additional burden as well? Yes, yes. absolutely. And, and it's interesting because um, it's again, one of those things that you don't realize that everybody else experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I would forget talking to maybe a surgeon that's in Africa and should say, well, I don't experience that. And I'll be like, oh yeah, of course, because your environment <laughs> is a little different. Right, right. <laughs> But yes, it's, it's, it's an additional burden. I actually belong to a, I'd say a support group because it, we do support each other of, we are all black female transplant surgeons wow. and there's 10 of us practicing. So we meet regularly or via Zoom to just talk and support each other. And it's just very, it's, it's so therapeutic because these are women who know exactly what you're experiencing that nobody else can can understand. Right. And I really, really highly recommend groups like that, small groups like that to just, they just help you, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they help you navigate through situations. We are all at different levels in our careers. So we all have something to offer each other. It's great. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion about facilitating conversations, uh, reaching out to people that look different than we do to facilitate conversation, to encourage understanding. What's your advice and perspective for your colleagues to 
to engage in those conversations in a way that is respectful and constructive and that actually would it sort of moves things forward in a positive way what what would you wish that maybe your your colleagues that are not people of color understood more about your experience i think just them understanding that it is a challenge because i feel like a lot of times people want to brush that aside and just think that we are all the same and we experience things the same but for just to recognize that we don't experience things the same and that things are very different and can be very challenging for us in other aspects you know that they don't even deem as challenging mm -hmm. and so i think just a lot of times we just want people to be open-minded about it and just to be able to have a conversation about it without being feeling like you know we don't owe you anything because you're black. No, that's not the point. Because sometimes, you know, people feel like we are wanting special treatment or we are wanting, you know, things to be changed in, in the way that things normally move in life. But that's not really what it is. What it is is that just we want people to recognize that there is a problem. And especially now in these times, recognize that the racism is a problem. Because you hear often people saying, well, I don't see color. Well, that alone, saying you don't see color is a problem because then you, you don't recognize that people of a different color are seen differently and are treated differently. So recognition, I think, is the, of the problem is the first step. And then just being very open and not bringing in your own preconceived notions and being open about about race and about the difficulties that other people face, I think will go a long way. Can you share an example of maybe something that you've experienced to give people a better sense of some of the things that you're talking about? So I think any woman, black woman in medicine will tell you of experiences where they've walked into a room, for instance, I could be with my team and I'll be the only black person or black woman and I have a team of white men who are, you know, residents and I walk into a room and I'm totally ignored and they direct, whether it's patients or staff, they direct their comments or their whatever they're talking about questions to the male white resident. And for me, I experienced it a lot even as a fellow where you you know you go to different hospitals to procure organs and when you get there you're ignored like i'll be totally ignored and they would be talking to my male white medical student thinking that he's the surgeon wow so it's and how do you handle that there so for me i mean i knew eventually they would need to talk to me right so <laughs> job's not going to get done me. otherwise right <laughs> Because I just let them be, let them do whatever, you know? And then eventually they would have to come and talk to me because they would have to. <laughs> so I actually didn't let that bother me. I'll be like, okay, they'll come. They'll come when they figure it out. <laughs> Do they ever apologize? Some people have apologized, actually. It's very, it was very refreshing yeah. because a lot of times people just act like they, it's not a problem. Like you should expect this, that you're not, you're not who, who would expect to be the surgeon. Wow. Yeah, but it's, it's quite interesting. 
But yeah. you know, as we get more representation, as we get more women of color, I think it, things will get better. It, it takes time, like with anything else, but I think things will start getting better. And as people, as we are becoming more visible, you know, I think things will get better. You talk a lot about role models. It's part of the reason why you wrote this book. Um, you also, I know, include at least one of your personal mentors, I believe, is profiled in the book. Maybe talk a bit about the importance of mentorship, which is a different, it's different from role models. They can be the yes. same thing, but, but there's a different element. Maybe talk about the importance of mentorship and what it means to you. So mentorship is so important because for you to succeed, you need to have mentors. And it's, re it's also in the last couple of years that I understood the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, right. which I go into in the book. But one of my mentors is Dr. Arika Hoffman. She's a transplant surgeon and she's in the book. And she, um, she trained me in Nebraska and we, we, are con we continue to be in touch very regularly, multiple times a week. And it's just, you know, to have a mentor that understands where you're coming from is golden. You will have many mentors in life some who do not look like you, who have nothing in common with you, and that's okay. But I think it's very important to have at least one mentor that truly understands, you know, the challenges that you face because they have navigated through them and they can teach you the lessons that they have learned and teach you the things, the pitfalls to avoid. And it's just, it, it's just a mentorship and therapeutic relationship. Yeah. You write and have talked about your tendency toward perfection. And yes. in the context of surgery, one could say, well, that seems like a pretty, pretty important thing. But you and I both know perfection cuts both ways. Yes. Talk about striking that balance. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the, I've struggled with this my whole life. I always, you know, say that I used to, when I came to America, I was so happy because I could write with pencil. Because, you know, back home, we always had to write with a pen. But when, when I came to America, even in high school, I could write with a pencil and it was perfect because if I made a mistake, I could just erase it and continue on. My papers were always perfect. <laughs> Whereas if I wrote with a pen and I made a mistake, I'd have to strike through and continue writing. And so it wasn't perfect anymore, you know. Right. And so it, you don't really realize it as you're growing up that it's a bad thing it can be a very bad thing because sometimes perfectionism can be paralyzing and it can, it can really hold you back. And so I feel like a lot of times people don't do the things that they want to do because they are afraid it's not going to be perfect. They're not going to be perfect. For instance, I started a podcast, which basically I remind my listeners that perfection does not live here. Right. So if you want a perfect podcast, you want to listen to something that's perfectly curated, move on, <laughs> go to something else. You're here. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's been such, so therapeutic for me because I do the very best that I can, but then I don't have that burden of having to make it perfect, you know? And so it's been nice to, to hear women call me or text me and say, I, what I really love about your podcast is just how authentic you are and just how real you are. Yeah. Because 
you know, we cannot be perfect 24 seven all the time. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, you have to strike a balance as a surgeon at the end of the day, I want to do the very best work that I can for my patient all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can see my perfectionist tendencies creeping in, but it's okay. I'm working. I'm at work in progress. Right, right. <laughs> we all are. We all are. I want you to talk a little bit more about what you are trying to accomplish with your podcast. It's called Passion and Purpose, just mm -hmm. like your book, which I've got here. Um, talk about what you're trying to accomplish with the podcast. And, and by the way, I mean, is there anyone any busier than you? You're a transplant surgeon, you're teaching, you're, edu you're educating other young surgeons at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You've yes. got a podcast, you've got this amazing book. Um, and I'm not sure when you sleep. <laughs> but talk about the podcast and what you're trying to accomplish with that. So again, I think what drives me most is when I do creative projects is to do something that I want. So really it's like the podcast is for me, just like the book was really for me and then other people benefit from it. Uh -huh. So the podcast is, is what I wish I had had when I was in my probably twenties, early thirties. So like just a, a, a safe space where we can just talk about all things girls that affect girls like me. So my podcast is actually, I have a lot of friends. Well, since, you know, most of my life has been in the States, a lot of my friends are English speaking or white women. And so they will call me and they'll say, well, you're going to have to tell me what you were talking about on the podcast because, <laughs> because it's actually in, it's mostly in English, but there's a lot of Shauna, which is my native language. Uh -huh. And so it's a place where women who are in Zimbabwe, because I have listeners in Zimbabwe too, uh -huh. and mostly women in the diaspora, because there's a lot of us all over the world to just have, where you can come and you can hear tidbits of your own language and just talk about all things that affect girls, whether it's how to clean your house, how to be a boss babe at work, how to be a boss mom, you know, things like that. And so I have a a good lineup where we'll be talking about all aspects of womanhood, whether you're married or single, whether you're a mom or not. So I think it's just a, a nice place to just gather and chat. And, you know, sometimes I'll throw in a few controversial topics here and there, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's great content. It's really terrific food for thought. I've loved listening to it. Thanks. When you sort of look at your body of work so far, right? Recognizing you're still a work in progress. You've got lots more to accomplish. What's the impact that you hope you will have had up to this point? I think the greatest impact that I hope to have had is for women at all stages in their lives, girls at all stages in their lives, to be inspired for greatness, to be inspired to dream big, the biggest dream they can ever dream and go for it full force. Because looking at, at my story and my humble beginnings and where I've, been, where I've come from and where I am now, it's just a testament of God's grace. And it's a testament of what dreaming big can achieve. If you had told me when I was five years old that I would be 
a transplant surgeon in the United States, I would have been like, <laughs> you must be talking about something, somebody else, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, but I had that dream. Yeah. And so just for, for girls and women to know that their dreams are valid and that their dreams are possible, all they have to do is work hard and persevere. And there will be a lot of ob obstacles that come along the way, but you just cannot give up. Just never give up on your dreams. That's my biggest, my biggest say. Yeah, beautiful. I have loved this conversation. I do not want to take up more of your time because you've got really important things to accomplish today, I know. Thank you so much for being Thank here you. and for sharing your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. I really loved it. Thank you. Friends, thanks so much for joining us today for this amazing conversation with Dr. Praise Matamave. To learn a bit more about her, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 118. I've included a link to her book as well as her website and her new podcast, which is called Passion and Purpose. I hope you'll check those things out. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode, I would love to hear from you. Please send me a, rev a review and let me know what you thought, what you liked, and also other topics and themes that you'd really like to hear more about. I especially loved in our conversation today, frankly, there were many things that I loved, but I especially loved hearing her thoughts around imposter syndrome, which is a very common theme on this podcast. So I'd love to know what you thought as well. Until then, thanks so much for being here and sharing your time with us. I'll see you next week. Take care.